Spirit as he applies your word this morning. As your servant Matthew faithfully and accurately shares the truth with us, please give us a deep sense that you are at work, continuing and completing the work that you began in us. So thank you. Thank you for this beautiful time. God, please work in our lives, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to be back with you in the Gospel of John after some time away from the Gospel of John, that is. Thank you for leading us so well, musicians. We have the privilege to continue to wade into the depths of this Gospel, and I was wondering if there might be anyone out there that might be able to tell us or tell me what the purpose of the Gospel of John is. What the purpose of the Gospel of John is. This, what was that? There you go. There you go. The Gospel's been written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, having believed, have life in his name. You remember when we come to the Gospel of John, we have to always look at it through the lens of verse 14 of John 1, which says and tells us that the Word, the eternal Logos, the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus, he became flesh, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us. And you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle would reveal what? The presence and glory of God. And so Christ comes and He is the, <clears throat> the one who now reveals to us the glory of God. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. John chapter 11 verse 40 tells us that when you believe, you will see the glory of God. Of God. Second Corinthians chapter three verse eighteen tells us that as we behold the glory of God, we grow in Christ's likeness. And so glory is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, and glory is revealed to us quite poignantly in the Gospel of John. We finished ten sermons in John six. And now we begin to journey through John chapter 7. John chapter 7 will continue to reveal more glory to us. Even in fact this morning we'll see more glory revealed to us in the beloved son, the Lord Jesus. The title of this message is The Lord Knows. That will manifest or make itself evident in a number of ways as we go Along And so I'd love for you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. And for the sake of time, we'll stop reading in verse 18.
May God bless the reading of his word. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify of it. That its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast. Because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were then astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness. Father, we we come before you, Lord, and we need you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you truly didn't leave us as orphans. You gave us your word. You indwelt us with your spirit. And Father, would you bless the preaching of your word of God, your word. Accomplish something great, something necessary, something vital in our life. A life that is fast and fleeting, a life that is just a temporary moment on the way to our eternal home. 
pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Jesus preached a lot. <clears throat> and there was one specific sermon that he was preaching. And we read about it in Luke chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. I kind of want to introduce what's going on in our passage this morning by reading these words to you. Luke chapter 11, verse 27, <clears throat> Jesus is preaching. And the woman from the crowd yells out something. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Remember what Jesus said in response? He said, on the contrary. Actually, no, he says. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Imagine that scene. A woman rises up and says, blessed are you. And she names all the earthly, physical aspects of the Son of God. And I'm sure the people would have said, yeah, blessed are you. And Jesus says, no. Don't go there. Don't find your blessedness there. You want to know what's truly blessed? Is the child of God in the midst of a very dire world. Hears the word of God. And observes it. That's what blessedness is. Why do I begin there? Well in our passage this morning. We're going to see. That Jesus' brothers. Are like that woman. They're like that woman. And we'll unfold more of that. As we go along. But if you're taking notes. In our passage this morning. In John chapter 7. We're going to see in verse 1 a growing hostility. A very real growing hostility. Then in verses 2 through 5, we're going to see a godless passion. A godless passion as these brothers who, verse 5 tells us, were unbelieving, are filled with strong desire and strong passion that is not in accordance with the will of God. Or the wisdom of God. And then we'll see number three in verses six to nine. We'll see a guided timeline. As we're reminded that the beloved son is not sent to fulfill his own <clears throat> desire. Or his own will. But the desires and will of him who sent him. Namely, the eternal father. And finally, fourth, we'll see a good time. In verses 10 through 13. They're kind of four movements, if you will. Four movements in our passage this morning. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Let's begin by looking first <clears throat> at a growing hostility. There's one growing hostility in my throat, I can tell you. <clears throat> Bizarre. A growing hostility in verse 1. Look again there with me at verse 1. 
After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's pretty significant if someone wants to kill you. They're obviously hostile toward you. And to keep the to give us some context and to maintain where we're at so we don't just lose ourselves. In chapter 6, we obviously began to see the masses flock to Jesus, right? People just were flocking from all over the place. All the regions were coming to be around Jesus and they were happy and they loved it and they sat under His every word and they, they stirred one another up to come and see. They even got in their little boats and crossed over the Sea of Galilee to come and be with this Jesus. And then we began to see in John chapter 6 things like grumbling introduced. And then arguing. And then betrayal. And then ultimately, even the effects of the devil being mentioned. Well now in John chapter 7 and certainly in John chapter 8, we will observe hostility toward Jesus just grow and grow and grow. You know, back in John chapter 6, verse 15, the masses loved Jesus so much, we read there that they wanted to make him king then and there, you recall. But from John chapter 7 now onward, really throughout the end of this gospel, the Apostle John, as he keeps his purpose in mind, he will go out of his way, as it were. To really, really emphasize the deepening and growing hostility that our Lord faces. In fact, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, there are more words from those who oppose Jesus than Jesus himself. And I do want to say again that we must always remember that underpinning purpose that John has for, that, for his gospel here. That one might believe that one might come to faith, and that in believing, one might then have life in His name as that person keeps on looking to the Word of God and looking to the means that God affords us to keep running this race. You know, throughout Jesus' life, He could always go up to Jerusalem. There were three major feasts and others that every Jew would go up to Jerusalem, Jesus, his entire life, could go up to Jerusalem without a care. Up until this point. Jesus was praised and followed and adored, as I said, by the people. But now we read in verse 1 that he was not willing to go up. Because the people that led the people who loved Jesus, the religious leaders, they wanted now to take his life. And if you look again at verse 1, it says, after these things. Begins there, after these things. Now that's obviously referring to all that took place in chapter 6, which included the feeding of the 20,000 and included the rich depths of the bread of life discourse, where Jesus made it clear that he was the true bread from heaven that gives life and joy to those who trust in him and feed upon him and abide in him. And if you recall, one of the significant things about the feeding of the tens of thousands was that it occurred right around the time of Passover. John specifically mentions that in verse 4 of John chapter 6. You remember I made mention 
more than one occasion that that is not a chronological reference as though John just simply wants us to know what time it was, but it was a theological reference to show the depths and to teach us that the feeding of the people by Jesus was a sign that pointed to something beyond just the food, but to what Jesus does do and give to the soul of a person when they come to Him and believe in Him. That is, they give that person a lasting satisfaction and an eternal fulfillment that they must always be feeding upon. We don't simply just come to the bread of life once for sustenance. We come and bite upon Him and feed upon Him for eternal life. And But we must always abide and always come continually to the Lord Jesus so as to continue to be satisfied and fulfilled as we live this life, as we go on believing, having life in His name. But this Passover occurred in April. You look at verse 2 of John 7, it says that there's this Feast of the Booths that was near. Well, that occurred in October. And so, we know that there's a gap from verse 71, the final verse of John 6, through to this very first verse of John chapter 7. There's a gap of six months. And John chooses, again, in keeping with his purpose, to not go into any detail of what occurred in that six-month window. We do get a little window into what took place because verse 1 does say that Jesus was walking in Galilee. The bread of life discourse and the feeding of the 20,000 in John 6 took place in Galilee. And so for six months we can draw from that that Jesus was walking around Galilee. And after six months, he's still there. We've got to remember, don't we, when we read the Gospels, that John, for example, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're not writing an autobiography about Jesus' life. That's not what the Gospels are. Each of the Gospels are written with an express purpose. John is keeping in line with his purpose here to present Jesus as Messiah so that one might believe. Matthew and Mark tell us that in this six-month gap, Jesus was all over the Galilean region, healing people, casting out demons. But the bulk of the six months, Jesus spent with the twelve disciples. He was teaching them and even revealing His glory to them. You recall Peter, James, and John when Jesus revealed Himself in the transfiguration to that inner circle of three. Why does John just skip over all that? Why does he do it? Well, I'll tell you why. Right here, John wants us to see, smell, even taste the hostility. Such hostility that Jesus is not willing to go into Jerusalem to the feast, which he would have done his whole life. When it says Jesus was unwilling to walk, walk there, conveying the idea of life and ministry, Jesus, due to the hatred and the opposition, the hostility that He was experiencing, was not free to live and do life and ministry there. And so the first movement we see in our passage 
really is a lack of movement. It's a lack of movement due to the hostility that's growing. Was Jesus completely unwilling to go to Jerusalem? Was Jesus afraid of the hostility? Was the present danger and even the possibility of danger going to prevent him from obeying God's commands? Well, I think you know the answer to those questions. And as we walk through our passage this morning, I trust we'll see that the answer to each of those questions is a resounding no. I love what John Calvin said of this verse. He said, quote, although Christ avoided such dangers here, he did not turn aside even a hair's breadth from the course of his duty. End quote. That was true of our Lord. That's true of us in this world. As Christians, this world will present us with dangers, trouble, really in many forms. And we must never turn away from obeying God even in the midst of those troubles and difficulties. It's easy to do that. How do we apply this here? Think about it. Jesus was greatly loved when He gave the people what they wanted. Food and kind words. But when He pointed out their sin and He pointed out their actions that grieved God, they wanted Him slandered and gone from their sight. As Christians, when we remain faithful, the same happens and will happen to us. Let me illustrate it. When we hide away offensive aspects of our faith, when we dilute the gospel and we fail to live out the very real applications of the gospel in our life, We will be loved and adored. But when we proclaim our faith, for the gospel itself is offensive enough to our world, when we live out and draw out those various applications of the gospel, we will be treated like our Savior. And how was He treated? Slandered and rejected. so there's a growing hostility, first movement. Second movement in this passage is, as I said, a godless passion now. Look at verse 2. And this is really what introduces words from Jesus' brothers. It's this feast of booths in verse 2. This was a monumental feast for the Jews was referred to by some as the Jewish camping festival. Would have been fun. It would have been fun. Seven days out camping in these little huts that you would make out of branches. I mean, imagine making those with your family and your kids and others around outside. 
these little huts that they made out of branches, what were they? Well, you, you know, the people of Israel, when they left Egypt, they lived in little shelters just like that. And Yahweh provided for them in the wilderness. Leviticus 23, Exodus as well speaks of this. Speaks of it being this harvest time where they were to harvest and bring things in. Not the usual things. This was bringing in grapes and olives. Grapes and olives are better than bland wheat and the like. So they were to bring these grapes and olives in and dwell in these little shelters made of branches. And really to give thanks to Yahweh. So the Feast of Booths was a a grand celebration. One historian who lived in the first century himself, Josephus, he said that this feast was by far the most popular. So super fun. Everyone was there. And so since it was about to happen, and since everyone was there, Jesus' actual blood relatives, his half-brothers, they say to him, look at verse 3, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you're doing. These brothers are born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' miraculous conception, so they're his younger half-brothers. Matthew chapter 13 verse 55 lists their names, James, Joseph, Simon and Jude. And here, they're displaying this passion for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem and publicly, publicly display His powers as Messiah in the form of miracles. Go up there so that all the people may see your works, your miracles that you are doing. There's many layers to the zeal that these brothers of Jesus are conveying. They're really zealous for Jesus not to hide who He is, but they want Him to go right into the center of it all and display who He is by miracles. Now when we think of this, it could well be that the brothers were rattled by the major abandoning that occurred in John chapter 6. You recall that? John chapter 6 verse 66 says what? That many of His disciples followed Him no more. They might be rattled by that. And so they're thinking that they could rectify the sad situation. And so they're kind of pressing for that. I mean, they, they do say, your disciples. They do say, hey, your disciples will see it. It could also well be that they are aware that the Messiah was not to make Himself known in the countryside. But the Messiah was to make Himself known in Jerusalem. Highly likely, they believed in a political Messiah. A political Messiah who would usher in a time of utopia free from Rome's oppression, that was the common view. 
And so these brothers are really pressing for action from Jesus. Go. This is reminiscent of the people that I mentioned earlier from John 6.15 who wanted to just make Jesus king and appoint Him Messiah then and there after seeing the miraculous sign that He had performed in feeding the 20,000 plus. You know, there's a real irony in their words too. And John likes irony. He likes to use irony and point out irony. And the irony in the brother's words teaches us a very, very important lesson. And it really shows us that the brother's passion that they're exhibiting here is coming from an earthly, godless place. Look at verse 4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Here's the irony that John is highlighting. John told us in verse 19 of John 1 that the world rejects him. That the world has no interest in him. In fact, John's gospel informs us that you simply cannot receive Jesus, partake of Jesus, and still be of the world. You see, the brothers who are not even believers as they say these things, according to verse 5, they are thinking that the Savior, Messiah, will come to the world and display His miracles and then usher in peace on earth, when the reality is that is not how Jesus fulfills the Father's plan as Messiah. You see, what the brothers could not grasp, and what we must grasp, is that Jesus as Messiah was not a path of popularity and applause from the world, but the path of Jesus as Messiah was one of hatred and being despised by the world. Not having a crown, but a cross. And so, yes, Jesus will be revealed in Jerusalem. That's for sure. But it won't be with miracles and signs as these brothers long for. Jesus will be revealed in the very dramatic and drastic horrors of the cross. And it is by that cross, all bloodied and crushed under His Father's hand, that Jesus, ironically enough, according to John chapter 12, verse 32, will draw all men from the world to Himself. You see? Not all men without exception, for that would make the cross of Christ the universal heresy. But all kinds of men from all different places and all different ethnicities and all different social standings. And so Jesus' brothers did not understand the true mission here of the beloved Son of God. 
Because they had not wisdom from God, but wisdom from the world. For, verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. That explains why. When you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. God's wisdom. That we must continually have the word of God assure and tr our hope and transform our mind. But when you're born again, you receive the spiritual faculties to not be like these brothers. Let me apply this. We must always make our decisions. We must always make sure our desires and our passions are in line with the will of God. We must bring every thought and every plan and every decision in subjection to the revealed will of God found to us in His Word. Though we are redeemed and though we are regenerate, unlike the brothers here at the time, we still carry around a body of unredeemed flesh that wages war against us. And if we're not careful, we can desire things, do things, think things in the spirit of the brothers, if you will. When we need to ensure that our decisions and our passions are in line with the will of God. The flesh will always try to force the hand, just like the ungodly passions of Jesus' brothers were trying to force His hand. We need to bring every thought and passion captive to the obedience of Christ and the Gospel. And always remember, my dear brothers and sisters, church family, our faith, just like the Savior of our faith, is not a path of popularity, but a path of un unpopularity and suffering. You say, well, that's pretty dire. The Apostle Paul said, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Christ. We don't ignore the call from God to ensure that all our decisions are according to His will. All our thinking is according to His will. For us to live is Christ. Not the expedient or the easy or the popular. That's the second movement. The third movement now in our passage is really in response to those godless passions of the brothers. And it's what we are going to call number three a guided timeline in verses six through nine. Look at the response from Jesus here. 
So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune or always here, always good. What's Jesus saying there? My time to go up to the feast is not yet here. You can always go. We see here now that Jesus is on a timeline, a timetable, not his own. And any worldly passions and any worldly desires and any worldly urgings will not thwart that, even if they come from the closest to him, his own family, his own household. I'm sure there's a lot we can apply from that. You remember, when you consider these words, when Jesus says, my time is not yet here. You remember back at another fun feast that would have been a lot of fun too, the wedding at Cana? What did Jesus say to his mother Mary? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. I think Mary got a little bit of a grasp of this divine timetable when she told the people present, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. But she still was grasping, coming to grips with all that. Whether at the wedding or this feast of booths, Jesus simply would not get or give in to any pressure to speed things up for man. He was on his father's timeline. He was guided by the will of of the Father. And you know this, John's Gospel reveals time and time again that in eternity past, the Father gave a people to the Son. That's you and I. And Christ came to fulfill everything that you and I couldn't fulfill. We sung before that the Lord has promised good to me. And maybe you sit here and say, well, there's not a lot of good going on for me. But if you were, and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were, if you were in that eternal decree, that pactum salutis, that plan of redemption in eternity past, when, you would, when Christ would come, sent from the Father's love, live a perfect life that you could never live. The Lord's been good to me. And die a death that you could never die. The Lord's been good to me. And rise again that you could never do, so as to unite you to newness of life, so you live on for eternity. The Lord has been good to me. It, that's the reality in the midst of our heartache right now. Do you understand? Jesus has been so good to us. He went on his father's timeline for you and I. Jesus, in verse 7 now, he brings the brothers back in. And he does show so to shine the light further on the contrast between two types of passions or wisdoms. Or thinking. However you want to describe it. They are contrasting here. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, The world cannot hate you. 
but it hates me. I want you to note how Jesus now takes up their use of the word world. And he uses it in a very different way to them. You want me to go and show myself to the world? The world doesn't receive me. The world rejects me. The world hates me. But the world doesn't hate you. It cannot, he says, hate you. Why can't it hate them? Because they're of the world. And they and the world loves its own. There is no ability for the world to hate those who are of the world. But the world hates Jesus. John chapter 15 verse 19, Jesus says, the world hates me. And he says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Because it hated me before it hated you. The reason the world hates Jesus is his ever incessant rebuke of the sins of the world. The brother's time to go up to the feast is always good. They're of the world. And the world mingles there. And yes, the command to keep this feast of booths was from God, but the people with their godless passions, just like the brothers, and wholesale rejection of the true Messiah had corrupted the entire Jewish practice. Jesus says, it's always good for you to go up, but I can't go up because the world who is up there in Jerusalem hates me. And so Jesus says to his brothers there, look in verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. I need you to understand from the original language, I think the ESV renders this really well. Jesus is saying, I'm not going up just yet. I'm not going up at this very moment, but I am going to go up in a moment. So Jesus isn't lying here. It's not as though Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go up, and then he goes up. He's saying, I'm not going up just right now, because my time has not yet fully come. He is not afraid to go up and be hated and be hurt. Do you, do you love that about your Savior Jesus? That he was not afraid to go up and to be hurt? He's just saying here that my time just hasn't yet arrived. Because he's on his father's plan. What we see from our Lord here is that he is bringing light upon the fact that he is the Messiah and he's doing so in his divine way, not through the earthly wisdom of others. And again, just a strong reminder, we must bring all of life in line with God's wisdom and God's plan, not our own wisdom 
and our own desire for some type of plan. And so there's a growing hostility, there's a godless passion, a guided timeline. The fourth and final movement here in verses 10 to 13 really is, we call it a good time. After staying in Galilee, sending his brothers off, verse 10 says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Commentators say things like this. Just waited. <laughs> That'd be funny to watch. That'd be like a glitch in the matrix. Um, they say things like this. He waited. All the roads would have been clear because everyone would have already arrived. There would have been less uh, hostility. People couldn't catch him out. Obviously, Remember, they wanted to kill him. He also went through Samaria. He also took the different route that the Jews wouldn't have taken. But he comes right at the right time. And we'll see later on that he arrives right in the midst of the feast and he goes there not to perform miracles but to teach the Word of God. To proclaim truth. And so he goes up. Verse 11 tells us that the Jews were seeking him at the feast. Some commentators want to say that that's not just the religious Jews, but that's why I made mention before that the people who loved him have been led by the people who lead to be hostile towards him. Growing sentiment among the Jews in general, the people, but more specifically, certainly, the religious leaders were seeking him at the feast. They were saying, where is he? There's all this grumbling in verse 12. You know, I think this is, I thought about this during the week. I'm like, this is certainly the pastor's lot, but the pastor's a Christian too. It's certainly the Christian's lot. People were saying of Jesus, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, 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 he, he leads people astray. You know, I heard one guy during the week comment on this, and he said, both answers are wrong. Jesus is not merely a good man, and he certainly doesn't lead people astray. They don't understand either. He is the Word of God made flesh, God incarnate amongst them. Verse 13 says, No one was speaking openly of Him for fear of the Jews. As the hostility grew, everyone kept their mouth closed. It's here in this passage, particularly this portion rather in verse 10, it tells us that Jesus leaves Galilee. He leaves Galilee here for the final time before being crucified. And I do love what one commentator says about verse 10 when it says there, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up, as in secret. One commentator said this, quote, The assumption in this verse is that the Father has signaled to Jesus in some way, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, always one and communicating, sharing the one divine essence and one divine will. Jesus goes up, not in public, but in private as it were. And that's really it. How do we apply all this? We've made kind of mini applications all the way along, but how, what do we kind of do with this? I just want to say this. I hope it's obvious to you that here 
our Savior is alone. He's alone. Family, friends and followers have abandoned him. People have not understood him. People have slandered him. And no doubt he hurts because Jesus wept. He was fully and truly a man. And no doubt he hurts. But he's not overcome. Because he knows he's not alone. He may feel alone. But the facts are that he wasn't alone. And as one little Jewish commentator of our day said, facts don't care about your feelings. The fact is that he's not alone. He is in lockstep fellowship with his father. We all know the date, 1517. We know that's when God rose up a little Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther went to the doors of Wittenberg and he split the world in two by writing his 95 Theses, which sparked the Protestant Reformation. Well, in 1519, Martin Luther wrote another work Less known, but it split the world and splits the world in two as well. He wrote a book on what he called the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Theologians of glory versus theologians of the cross. And in that work, Martin Luther said, theologians of glory are those who seek to escape all their pain and suffering in this world and they'll do everything they can at all costs to avoid it and try and try and run for it. But it may be, Luther said, God's will that you experience suffering. And so instead of trying to be a theologian of glory and actually in the depths of your despair trying to escape it by seeking your own glory, Luther said, you must now turn and look full in the face of the gospel revealed to you in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus upon the cross and take your suffering and see in God's economy He works beautiful wonders through suffering and look eye to eye with your suffering. The brothers? Theologians of glory. Jesus, as he walked alone here, is the theologian of the cross. Even when we are hurting, and even when we feel like we're alone, we need to be like Jesus and not his brothers. We need to remember that God is with us. We are in His hands. We must seek God's wisdom. 
we must walk humbly before our God. Our Savior was alone. But He was not alone. You may feel alone. Where is God? But you're not alone. The Lord has been very good to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this opportunity. Moses prayed in Psalm 90 that you would confirm the work of his hands. That he would live in light of your wisdom and be found to be walking in that wisdom in the days of his life. Father, your son bowed his will to your will and did the same. Father, would you please forgive us? For failing to be wise and to recall your goodness and love towards us. Father, you know, and we'll soon learn in this gospel, that these brothers end up receiving salvation. Oh, how they would look back on this moment and say how unwise we were. Because we took earthly wisdom and tried to run the race with endurance with earthly wisdom. Spare us from such a thing, Lord. Help us to look full in the face of our loneliness and our heartbreak and our hurt. And look full in the face of how Jesus reveals Himself and Your love to the world. And it's through the cross and suffering. The brother's earthly wisdom wanted grandeur and displays of popularity and ease. And imagine the scene, Father, we imagine the scene of this feast. The brothers and everyone else all in ease. And your beloved son alone in agony. Abandoned. Having the world's upper echelon, hostile towards him. And yet he was not overcome. Help us, Father, by your grace to not be overcome. Give us a grasp of your economy. The brothers wanted miracles and displays of grandeur. You planned and purposed suffering and 
drastic events of the cross for how you draw people to yourself. And we need your wisdom. We need to remember that we are in your hands. Father, help us, we pray.